I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think is, I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume, I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Cause see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap, like, you know, back in the day, like you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Hello everyone, this is Webb Smith back with Polymathic Audio. We have a special guest with us today. His name is Mr. Rafat Ali. He's the founder and CEO of Skift, a B2B publication that covers the travel industry. He is an entrepreneur that I've long looked up to. Um, he's built his business the right way. And I suspect that you will find that this short conversation will be the beginnings of a masterclass in how to build a B2B media company the right way. Hey, Webb, thank you for having me and thank you for those kind words. Oh, you're welcome, sir. Uh, listen, I want to start, I don't want to focus on the beginning, but I do want to provide context for people that are listening. Explain how you built what you built in, I guess, the zero to one context, the first few years of Skift. Yeah. So this is my second company. I built a previous uh, B2B media company. I come from um, online media world, early days of blogging. Uh, early days of bloggers in their pajamas making media companies, building media companies. That was my first company paid content, which uh, if any of your listeners are in the media industry for a while, will remember from the early aughts. And so it was a prototypical example of how to use blogs to create sort of vertical media companies more on the B2B side. And Gawker took that blog model in the consumer side. We took it in the B2B side. So I've always been in the B2B media world. My expertise, I guess, as an entrepreneur is connecting the dots across seemingly separate industries that are connected through some thread. So what paid content was, this is, you can imagine back in 2002, 2000, yeah, was when we started, was newspaper industry was separate from music industry, was separate from you know, other parts of um, entertainment, Yahoo, et cetera, et cetera. The connecting thread that came into the digital world was quote unquote content that became the content industry. So my job early on was connecting dots across why should newspaper industry executives in 2002 be very intently looking at what was happening, what happened to the music industry a few years earlier because of Napster. It wasn't apparent to the newspaper industry then. Obviously, it became really apparent later, right? With They got Napsterized as well, so to speak. Um, fast forward with Skift, which we launched into, in 2012. Travel industry, like the, the way that you would know as an outsider, is really an agglomeration of you know, 10 different subsectors. Hotels had their own publications. Air, airlines had their own publications. Destinations, cruises, et cetera, et cetera. There wasn't, it seems so, so obvious, but like there wasn't a Bloomberg of travel. And um, 
in 2012. Like the consumers had spoken, they'd use they're using digital tools. They don't care about the silos that the industry have sort of defined for itself. And I learned, you know, from the media slash content industry, those silos collapsed. In travel, the first Web 1.0 wave, the second Web 2.0 wave had not brought along business media disruptors in the travel space, even though it's a giant industry. And so we came in with that premise with an idea that forget the subsectors in travel, we're going to be focused on the fanatically focused on changing consumer behavior and how that affects travel as opposed to covering the silos in travel, which meant that we were able to cut across all silos in travel and then cover it like the Bloomberg of travel. And so now 2020, end of 2020 almost, we are eight and a half years into our journey. Obviously, we've aged in this year probably a decade. <laughs> uh, it's not funny, but I, I certainly understand what you mean. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, I've, I've, I've thought this through. Like, if, if it wasn't existential this year, it would be exhilarating because that, you know, the push and pull as an entrepreneur, that hustle that you have, that reminded me and my co-founder, Jason Clampett, of early days of Skipped in 2012. He's like, we're going back and forth quickly on this thing. How does this work? I, can you change this on the site? This looked like that's the early days, right? Um, eight and a half years later, that's not what we were doing last year. Obviously, the company had grown up. Uh, but this was an existential year. So it was very exhilarating from just like the pure adrenaline perspective. Obviously, you have to shut off your your emotional brain to be able to do that. Uh, so yeah, this year has just been, and I would say, thankfully, this is, I'm sitting here, obviously, we're sitting here early, early December. Uh, we're still alive. That's a big, big deal in the travel industry. Um it looks like we're we're past the worst. Uh, the travel industry is past the worst. Yes, it's going to be a very dark winter. Everybody knows that. It's happening in front of our eyes. But the vaccine news is incredible. Um, and, you know, we're estimating second half of next year, the recovery really starts for the travel industry. It's going to be a multi-year recovery. Some sectors will do better than others, like short-term rental, Airbnbs, IPO is tomorrow, Thursday morning. Um, and that's a giant, huge success story, not just before the pandemic, but also during the pandemic as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's just been an incredible ride. I couldn't have, yes, people will say, well, are you still in love with the travel? Of course, I'm still in love with the travel sector. Um, it's not in a secular decline, like let's say the media industry was when I was covering the business media. Um, and it'll come back. I mean, it, it will. It even if it's a few billion dollars less than what it was, like you know, it was a trillion dollar before. Now it's a few billion dollar less. It's still a giant market for us, right? So that's kind of how I look at it. Have you traveled much over the pandemic? I have not. So, um, just locally, and um, we took. A, I'm in Morocco right now. Uh, we came here for a, a family visit um, for a few weeks, um, and that's the first flight we took 
two weeks ago. And uh, it was in, obviously, we live in New York, so this is the first flight, first international flight. We've done Airbnb, so we have, over the early parts, um, we stayed a couple of Airbnbs uh, in upstate, um, upstate New York, but that was it. So we have not really gone anywhere. Um, we covered the travel industry. Uh, I still don't think, um, tra- I'm going to say this carefully. Uh, I still don't think flying is as safe as the airline industry would want you to believe. It's not just the flying part, right? It's not just sitting in a tube part. It's the, it's every other touch point that you go through as part of the whole trip. Right. And so, um, and the reality is like, even on an airline, we can we probably don't want to go too deep into this, but on an airline, if some, if passengers decide not to wear the mask in midair, there's very little ultimately um, the staff can do. They'll say one time, two times, they won't be like standing in front of them the whole time, right? Uh, or, or of the people who are not wearing a mask. So in general, it's not as safe as people um as airlines have made you believe, which is that they do filter four times an hour, et cetera, et cetera. So I have not traveled. The long answer to your to your to your question is we have not traveled much. Well, I, I think that it's a fascinating question and answer. Um, I'm on the opposite end. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I've probably taken 20 flights over the pandemic. Oh wow. And yeah. Um, but this was solo you know, travel or. or- Mostly solo travel, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I would love to discuss this with you because I think, obviously, I spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of time consuming media and studying media. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my shortcomings is I have not spent enough time actually consuming Skift Pro material, which I will change that today. I promise, because travel is so fascinating to me as a commerce industry analyst, because I feel like there are leading indicators all throughout the travel industry that can be applied to other industries. Yeah. So that's, that's what I wanted to, that's what I want to discuss. Yeah, there are, we've said, and let's keep the pandemic aside only because it's obviously an extraordinary situation, but I have said, and we have said a skift from the start, that travel is the crucible in which a lot of tech trends converge and emer- and first get tested so like you know let's take instagram back when instagram started obviously instagram's rise to early rise to fame was travel photographs right it was people making you jealous about where they are that then obviously became a whole genre and then the whole instagram culture came about um is a good example of that um any other type of technology or consumer service gets tested by early adopters, which typically tend to be regular travelers like you. And so uh, in many ways, we've said that travel is a crucible. E-commerce in travel, as you very well know, because you studied the e-commerce very well, is one of the largest sectors. It's probably one of the largest ticket items as well in terms of the dollar amount per purchase. Uh, compared to any other type of e-commerce, um, we you know it's a it's a it's a joke, but also a 
guessing game of when Amazon will enter travel, obviously being the largest e-commerce operator in the world. Um, it has it has done bits and pieces of it, but hasn't really gone into it. Um, you know, we have done research reports about every time we do anything about Amazon and travel is the most read thing that we ever do. Um, so there's a lot of interest. It, we th- we think that Amazon will continue to. Um, it may end up buying something, but I don't. I think well, I think you would know better than I do. I feel like they're more focused on physical goods than like digital delivery of somebody else's goods. But you tell me if that's true or not. You know, it's really funny. I was talking to a very high level founder in a very big business about the restrictions that she was facing because of UPS's ineptitude right now. Mm. And she mentioned that the only real competitor that UPS could have is is Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I discussed with her the fact that I had been at airports so frequently over the last six months that every time I visited a major airport, I saw more and more Amazon airplanes. Oh, wow. Okay. And in my opinion, obviously, they are delivering over 52% of their own packages right now. And they're clearly going to become the quote-unquote API for delivery systems of other uh, you know, uh, retail ecosystems, even the ones that aren't on Amazon. Right. But I do see they're becoming a path to consumer travel, given all the other things that Amazon has to sell. If you, yeah, like if you consider the in-flight experience and all the things that Amazon controls, they have the ability to generate an experience that no other vertical brand has the ability to to match, right? Um, So you're saying potentially even like a physical airline since they have the logistics part of the airline already going and an opportunity to have a captive audience, well, like the Whole Foods captive audience in a flight. Exactly. You know, imagine a uh, a, a 737 MAX, God forbid, whenever those get back and, and you have obviously a, a sizable portion of the plane devoted to the shipment of goods as most planes do. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the, the top side deck devoted to, let's call it premier, premier travel for Amazon Prime users, whatever it is. And they have access to all the tools, whether it's streaming, whether it's purchases, things that you would expect for an Amazon customer to want. Yeah, I, I see a future for that. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I, we certainly have not thought that um, creatively on this, but obviously, since you're in the e-commerce sector, you know Amazon very well. Um, could be definitely, if only to um, to be a loyalty. Thank you to the top Prime customers. Uh, potentially, could be done. Yeah, it would, would make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So we um, back to the original question in terms of travel as a crucible to a lot of the early trends that happen. Uh, definitely, and then. Um, you know, you see the the effect of globalization first if you travel, right? And and all the tools that, that people use. Um, I mentioned I'm here in Morocco and like in the small town and um, and like you go on the streets and kids are listening to, um, you know, hip hop and everything. This is like a random tiny town in Morocco. 
and it's just this is the digital world and the kids know english even though they're not taught english they just know english because they're listening to tiktok and everything else um so it's fascinating that really is fascinating and I, you know i i would one day love to deep dive the areas where our industries intersect um i just think it's really fascinating and again i, I i'm going to make a promise to you i'm going to spend a lot more time studying studying skift as a consumer not just as an analyst because i feel like i am i try to get rid of my blind spots right like i feel like on twitter the vast majority of arguments between people whether they're easy debates or you know uh more more tense arguments a lot of those conversations come from a place where one of the two people has a blind spot Right. Where, whether it's, yeah. you know, whether they lack the experience in something and therefore that informs their, their short sightedness or something. I, I think that travel is mine and I, I need to devote more time in that. Um, so let's talk about the economics of what you've worked on so far. Mm -hmm. You are independent. Have you raised money? Yeah, we raised money. Um, we have raised uh, about three million in seed, sort of extended seed over the years. Uh, with, as I mentioned, we're eight and a half years old. So we haven't really raised officially uh, in many years now, maybe five years now. Obviously, during this pandemic, we did get the PPP loan, which, you know, if there's a case study on like companies that could use PPP to save their business, you know, certainly we are one of them. Uh, it, it really saved us as a company. Um, and so, yeah, we've, and that's obviously a, a a debt that uh, I guess most of it will get forgiven because it's all for payroll. Um, and so, yeah, we raised about 3 million. Um, we were doing very well before the pandemic. Um, we were 60, uh, 61, 62 people at the start of the year in January. We were going to be, we were hiring six people at that point, which for us is a large number to hire at one time. Um, and uh, obviously, we, we put that to a stop pretty quickly in, in early Feb uh, when we saw China getting hit by the pandemic. Um, we had to unfortunately lay off uh, one third of our team. So we're now about 40 people. Um, we are now in a position to start hiring again. Again, it's incredible to even think about from what we went through in March and April. Um, we likely will do about four to five hires in 2020, 2021. We're approaching 2021 cautiously because for all the reasons everybody else would approach it cautiously. 2020 is a lost year. 2021 may be a semi-lost year for all we know. We don't know. Obviously, nobody knows even with the vaccine what's going to happen. But we're approaching it cautiously. So if we can do five hires, at least sitting here today, that's what we plan for, four to five hires um, to, to, to start, you know, building back the company. Um, but short of that, I mean, we were doing very well. And, and one of the good things that's happened during the pandemic from a, from a business perspective and, you know, shame on us if we let this crisis go to waste was um, Double down on subscriptions, uh, which was always part of our business. Uh, we had Skiff Research, which is our research arm um, for the last you know seven out of eight years of our existence, and that was high price um, 
research reports plus subscription, and we focused mainly on subscriptions, not on individual reports. Uh, so that was going very well, is going very well. Uh, we added something called Skiff Pro, which you mentioned earlier. It was a daily news service that we launched. You know, our news was was free slash, you know, advertising subsidized, which for us is branded content. We don't do um, typical advertising. It's all branded work. And so uh, the uh, the pro launched in July, um, which is three articles a month free, and then after that you have to pay. That's going really well, and you know this is despite us not having marketing resources today. But now that we're in hiring mode again soon, uh, we'll be able to put more muscle to it as well. So all in all, the great part about pandemic for us is it's reset our business. It's reset our economics, or at least we're on our way to resetting our economics. And I would imagine that's true for a lot of other companies as well, not just us, but in travel particularly, very true. Fascinating. So what are you seeing from other B2B media companies? What are you seeing them do wrong? Like if, if there's something that you would point out, since you are, you are the seasoned veteran, yeah, I think that I think one of the mistakes that people do, like, it is not just B two B, but the gen, they they latch on to any new thing. Newsletters, oh my god, feature of journalism is media's newsletters. Remember back, you and I are, are well, at least I'm old enough. I can't talk about you, but um, remember, iPad came and like iPad was the savior of magazines, right? Nothing happened there. Um, every I've, I've been, you know, part of what Web one point Web two point whatever. It is now Web 3.0, whatever this era is, I guess, platform era. Um, everybody latches on to the next savior. In B2B, there is no one, like you can't latch on to just subscriptions. B2, you have to bring everything along. Like it's like herding, herding, not cats, but herding cows. Um, <laughs> and like, Take them all together. You know, I guess kind of like, you know, the shepherd dogs. We're the shepherd dogs that that bring the flock forward. And um, that's what you have to do in B2B. It can't just be one thing. So uh, it can't just be subscriptions. It can't just be advertising. Just can't just be events. It has to be all of it. Nothing is a, is a silver bullet. I mean, let's take the most, let's take information, for example huge fan of Jessica and what they've built. Even they have added advertising. Even they have added events, even though they sort of put a very big line in the sand saying subscriptions is it for us. You know, that's what their whole reason for existence has been. That they are primarily true, but they've also added other stuff because they've realized, as everybody realizes, that you have to bring everything along. There's no single bullet, silver bullet. Um, in B2B media. Certainly not a single silver bullet if you want to grow it larger than, I'm going to make it up, 10 million in revenues. So I think that's the mistake that a lot of B2B media companies do, that they, um, at the same time, the other side is you have to, you have to make sure you don't, you don't say yes to everything in the world and just dilute yourself um, and not focus on anything. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tough balance that B2B media companies have to do. 
So I know that you have events, you have subscriptions, you have advertising, you have a number of revenue channels. Have you begun to consider consulting as one of those? And not only for the travel industry, but, but also for, for the like-minded companies that are doing what you do in similar verticals? Um, definitely no on the last part. Um, meaning like, would I be, would we do consulting for like media industry, other verticals in media B2B? No, um, we have done on and off consulting projects for in travel, uh, you know, private equity firm investing in a large, trying to do a large investment in some hospitality company, for example, and we would do the fees the market study of what the potential for this company is. But that's not, I would call that custom research, sort of one step before consulting. Um, I think that's where we would draw the line. Uh, we won't create the strategy, but we'll create everything that then the company would take and create their strategy. So I want to stick to what we know best, which is creating great editorial and stop there and let other people take action on it. So I think that would be the extent to which we would do consulting. Not to say never, to say never, ever, but for now today, what I've learned, um, what we have learned about ourselves is like, we are good at, we're really, really good at editorial in all facets of that phrase, right? Just, you know, think about all the ways you can think about creating great, great editorial, not just journalism, but also for companies, this, uh, this um, customer research slash, uh, slash consulting. But that's the extent to which we do it. Um, and so I want to stick to that. And I think that's where sticking to your knitting is where the focus matters. Uh, events is the same thing I've said on virtual events. Obviously, this year has been uh, events for us was a big business. It was high margin. It was about 50% of our 45% of our revenue uh, until last year. Obviously, this year has completely changed um, 50% gross margins, um, which is typical in B2B. If you do well, um, hopefully higher. Uh, with virtual events, what I, you know, the the everybody's doing virtual events, right? It's just it's it's become total glut. What what I said on Twitter, I think a few, <laughs> few days ago, was that if you chances are, if you are terrible at offline events, you'll be even worse in online events. So just because everybody's doing events doesn't mean everybody's doing it well. Um. And so, um, so you know, for us, Eddie's going back to great editorial, reality is like great virtual events is not about what great tech you're using. It's about how good an editorial you can deliver, which we knew how to do in, in offline. So we're doing it online as well. Um, is the money there yet? No. But can virtual events become a separate product line post-pandemic? as part of our suite of services in addition to physical? Yes. So that's kind of how okay. we're looking at it. And would you ever move into the consumer side of travel in the context of... Consumer uh, like that? Uh, well, I was thinking like the consumer side of travel. Here's what I mean by that. 
um, hosting like professional events that are skift branded that involve showing up at this location, partnerships with particular airlines, things like that. Is that too partial for you as an, as an industry analyst to execute? Yeah. I mean, we, I don't know if you know the New York times travel festival that they do in Jan, well, you know, certainly didn't happen. Uh, is not going to happen this year, 21. The New York times has a travel festival. It's a consumer festival, Jacob Javis center, New York, the big, all the big countries, et cetera, um, tourism boards, they do a consumer festival. People from tri-state area come and they do a showcase and travel agents and cruises, et cetera, et cetera. People have said to, it's, it's old school because it's been forever. And, you know, um, people said to us from the start, maybe Skiff should do like a modern version of a travel festival. That's consumer. Um, We've considered it. It's just, again, there's so much to do in our world. One, we're bootstrapped, so we have to you know, pick and choose our battles. Uh, or we're bootstrapped plus is how I call ourselves. Uh, we haven't raised enough money and you know, we don't intend to raise tons more. Um, so stick to our knittings. Um, we have considered, I mean, one of the initial plans was to potentially from industry news to news you can use for sort of business travelers slash avid travelers like you um, who would just be interested not because because you would want to know, you know, what's happening with this loyalty service or what's happening with that airline, et cetera, et cetera, because you're, you're just an expert traveler. Um, we did, con- that was initially part of our plan um, when we first launched Gift. But again, we learned that that that's just gonna dilute the offering. It was a thing that I was saying to investors because I thought I could raise more money based on that and realized that I was only fooling myself. And you know, we were we realized as a company we're only fooling ourselves. And there's so much to do in the B2B side of things that um that let's continue to stick to that. It's really fascinating. Uh, and I really appreciate your approach in the context of you staying so focused on what you're great at that you can um, improve your offering in that respect without watering it down by pursuing any other potential revenue vertical. That's really important for a lot of founders to hear. I think at the end of the day, like, what are we judged on? We're judged on just if you look at it as a pure business, what value we're delivering to our users. That's number one. Two, can you deliver profits? You know, that's the metal that everybody cares for. I mean, that's what I care for, right? And so if you know the business lines that work and you keep experimenting with new, obviously, but if you can keep optimizing the business in terms of the profit margins, et cetera, et cetera, while continuing to deliver value to the users, that's really what it is. So I think that's where it comes from. I think it's a little bit, I think you may have the same mentality in terms of the bootstrap mentality in, in many ways. So what, so what am I missing, right? As, as, someone earlier, as someone earlier in the timeline of building a B2B brand, a B2B media brand, one way that I was introduced to you was you were very critical of media practices. I think I was first introduced to you two or three years ago. I was like, man, that guy is really spicy. He's really telling it like it is. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I loved it. I was like, man, I wish I had the guts to say some of these things, but like, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. People are going to like spin on me, you know? Um, well, you're proving yourself, so don't sell yourself short, but yes. Well, thank you. Uh, what would you say? What would you say now? 
Like, what do you what what are your thoughts on like the Substack generation of B two B media companies? You know. Yeah. Well, I hope since you follow me on Twitter, at least have have I have brought down my spiciness. No good. <laughs> the thing that you, yes, you know, have. I think that like no good comes in this world from like putting yourself too much out there. Um, I just I've sort of as I've grown older, I've realized that, and also like. I've also come around, like I'm, I'm 46 now. So, uh, you know, one of the things you learn as you grow older is you practice generosity. So give people the benefit of doubt uh, and be generous in how you look at things. So it's early for me in that evolution and I'm sort of on that journey. Um, but your question was very different. Sorry, I forgot your question. <laughs> yeah, wow. No, 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 no. You've, you've, you've led right into it really well. So I... Again, like I, I was introduced to you when you were at your spiciest. And what you're saying to me is you are slow to exhibit that spice in public forums because your generosity is heightened and you're giving people the benefit of the doubt. You're not selling people short of what their potential are, what, what their potential can be. Like what is there left to say? That bus, that like HuffPost bought BuzzFeed. Like what am I, oh, or BuzzFeed bought HuffPost. Is there anything original I can add to this conversation at this point? I can't. And so if I'm not going to, I'd rather focus on areas that I can, which is travel. Back to, to your Substack question. Um, fascinating. Again, I'm going to practice generosity here. Um, and I've built my whole life. You go back to 2002, 2003, the early interviews with me. I was a young kid running around and you know, people were really in love with bloggers. So they used to interview and Wired interviewed me in like 2003. I was a nobody in East London back then. Um, and I said that my sole evangelizing function in life is journalist as an entrepreneur. And uh, I guess 17, 18 years later now, that is still the sole mission. So, or at least evangelizing function, which is great journalism, great journalists or people who have some business sense and then could break away and create their own things and create their own destiny. And so from that perspective, Substack is great. I'm so glad that a lot of these publications, uh, a lot of these journalists are taking the plunge that they have in different phases over the years on different platforms. So this is a new platform for it. My only sort of advice or caveat here to journalists or media entrepreneurs would be, and if, I think you're in the same boat, is to not be too dependent on the platform. Because, you know, what we learned with Medium, what we learned with other blog softwares before that, what we, what we may learn with Substack is too much dependency on any platform means that you still don't control your own destiny. And if things change for the company, like it did for media or somebody else, or they change their own business strategies, you're screwed. So I think uh, these days, WordPress plus MailChimp plus whatever else, two or three other things have made it so easy to pull these things together and still own 100% of your stack. I would say if you have any aspirations beyond just being a single person newsletter, that's what you should focus on, which is create your own stack and not create, own your own tech stack. Yes. So, you know, I've had this discussion in private uh, quite a bit. You know, I obviously have uh, a Ben Thompson-esque stack, right? Like I, 
I saw that stack in 2015. I'm like, that's it. Like that's that's what I'm gonna do. You know. And it's really um, difficult to be honest, or you can hire somebody to relatively cheap to put it together for you. Correct. Uh, you pay a tax for that stack, however, right? Like I probably pay more for my members than people on Substack pay for theirs. Well, and I that's fine. That. I don't know about that. Also, um, you have a lot more latitude to do whatever you can with the platform versus Substack's whatever they're building, right? With, with respect to that stack and the cost of it, here's what I mean. Um, you have... You have one fee that you're paying Substack. I'm paying fees to WordPress, to Stripe, to Memberful. Um, a Substack is also superior superior in one respect. It's much easier to gain a to gain a subscriber because it's one click opt in for subscriptions versus the way that I do it. It's two click opt in, right? So that my my funnel is much much uh, more narrow than than the traditional Substack writer. However, like you said, I believe that if you're going to build an actual inanimate brand, meaning a brand outside of yourself uh, in this industry, I don't think that you could do that as well on Substack. Um, but I, I could be wrong. And I, I look forward to being proven wrong if that's the case. Yeah, I wonder what's going to happen. Let's say, let's take this hypothetical situation. Some Substack newsletter becomes really big. An outside investor wants to come and invest or buy it. How's that going to happen? Yeah, I, I would couple that question with the fact that Substack has built a reader, essentially, you know, uh, Google a, a Google reader for for newsletters, which, in, in my opinion, makes Substack the media company and the individual writers the providers, the, the you know the contributors. Um, I, I don't know how you separate yourself from Substack without moving to a new platform altogether. And I know that a few companies have done that. And I'm not suggesting that anyone do that because I think that Substack is a great platform. But if you're building an actual brand, you're going to want some control over appearance, over distribution, and over like the URL functions of, of, uh, of what product you're selling. And I don't think that people have that right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, shouldn't be either or, you know, to each their own type of thing. Uh, there, you know, there's a, there's a Substack generation of writers and then there's companies like yours uh, and obviously ours as well that, that create their, that, that not, not only own their stack, but also create a lot of their own stack. And it's the cost of doing business. It's, it, right. it's, it's what allows us to scale and do the 20 other things that we do. We're in fact launching Next year, we're assuming all of our events will be virtual. We're hoping for some physical, but we're not planning for it. So we have, we have, we're planning about 12 uh, virtual events through the year, different lengths, anywhere from a few hours to like, you know, longest is two days. Um, anybody can join from anywhere. So um, we're creating a subscription service for anybody who wants access to all their events through the year. Um, why not? Instead of just single one-off tickets for it. So, um, and it's it's because we own the subscription platform in the back end. We now also own the ticket registration. We used to use third-party software for it, but we just, the pandemic gave us a chance to build it ourselves. We don't need, wow. we don't need Eventbrite, Cvent, 20 other things. 
um, it's already built as one component of our overall subscription stack. So um, that's amazing for us. Um, in theory, obviously, we'll see how it performs next year. But at least we own it end-to-end -end at this point. That allows us to do th things like create a subscription service for our events. So that's really fascinating. Um, I'm going to wrap this up. But one thing I want to do is I want to ask you if you had one piece of advice to this new era of B2B media players, um, what would that piece of advice be? I've always said everybody is going to either overestimate you or underestimate you. And this is a more of a more of an entrepreneur advice than sort of a B2B specific advice. But at the end of the day, you know yourself best. And like let nobody else either oversell you or undersell you. And what you know, your intuition is your best guide in anything you ever do. That's what I've always said. And like 20 of the people will give you 10 times of, of advice. And uh, none of it may be true or, you know, so what is my whole point is always do your own thing, trust your own intuition and run with it. That's the best advice I would have for anybody in any business, much less B2B. But in B2B, I would say that um, break out of the silos of, of what the industry has defined historically. If the industry has defined aging industry, I'm just making this up, it, only because my friend John Yedniak runs Aging Media News, which is a new new generation aging media focused on senior housing, et cetera, et cetera. The traditional publications would have categorized the sector in a very traditional old school way. The new generation of B2B has a great chance of redefining sectors, forget what the industry categorizes as. And I think that's the best way to make a mark on any industry. Like what you've done in e-commerce or reimagined what e-commerce is as a sector versus what e-commerce traditional publications would have been saying for the last 20 years, right? That's been my goal, yes. Absolutely. I've, I've tried to make e-commerce interesting for people that don't think that e-commerce plays a role in their professional or personal lives. Yes, and also expansiveness of your thought, um, and I think that's that's important. Which is why, how you and I started this conversation, curiosity about the world at large beyond just your own sectors is extremely important for you to build something really good in your sector. That's a great point, and with that with that well stated point, we will we will call it a show. Um, Mr. Ali, thank you so much for joining us from Morocco. And I look forward to the 2 p.m. community uh, hearing this and learning from your wise words. Thank you again. Thank you for having me and sorry for all the technical difficulties.